Hello, I'm Sotoyo Dupemi. With me is Amy Harry, my co-host, and you are listening to Rivers of Unicorns, the hub for tech enthusiasts. We're a virtual accelerator that supports innovative ideas and startups in underserved communities, setting them on a path to exponential growth. We are supported by the Kaywood Brown Foundation and powered by NetOps. Our discussion topic today is social entrepreneurship, finding fortune with the bottom of the pyramid. Joining us in this discussion is Dr. Abier Hector Goma. Be sure to stay tuned for that. But first off, let's go over our news highlights with Amy. On the international scene, Oracle boots up Microsoft and wins the bid for TikTok operations in the US. And in our local news, GT Bank's fintech ambitions could lead to a billion dollar IPO. And lastly, from our cohort, listening sessions currently hold in these cohorts. New Heaven Innovation Hub, City Tech Hub, House of Bow, the Kwood Brown Center, and Startup Bolo. That's it for our news updates. I hope you're all having a lovely day. As I mentioned earlier, our discussion topic for today is finding fortune with the bottom of the pyramid. To join the conversation, visit our website, www.riversofunicorns.com. You can also connect with us on Instagram or Facebook at Rivers of Unicorn. During this segment, we'll be joined by Dr. Abie Hector Goma, General Medical Practitioner and CEO K Hector Consulting. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you very much. So recently on Rivers of Unicorns, we've been discussing the social entrepreneurship landscape and the idea of finding fortune with the bottom of the pyramid. We've talked about the impact of social entrepreneurship on local communities with a focus on the three Ps, people, profit, and planet. And just thinking about those innovative ideas that startups can and are embracing to empower local communities while still running profitable companies. So Dr. Abier, tell us a bit about your profession and what sparked your interest in supporting underserved community. Right, I graduated from med school in 1989, so I've been practicing for over three decades. And um, um, health, I mean, going back to the good old definition of health, that is not just the absence of disease, but physical, social, cultural, spiritual, economic well-being. And um, two things, really, I keep remembering that two excellent gynecologists trained me in medical school. One was Emeritus Professor Kelsey Harrison and the other is Emeritus Professor Nimi Briggs. I noticed that at the end of their active medical career, in their final lectures or speeches, they talked about maternal mortality, death of women, and it hadn't changed much after four decades of work. And they, all talk, they both talked about education of the girl child is the answer to maternal mortality, not all the student sections and all of that. Mm-hmm. And that got me to, as I went through life and my medical practice, that 
medicine or physical health is only about 20% of health. 80% of health has to do with social factors. And we as doctors and our colleagues in the medical profession cannot make a difference with social factors. So those who make a difference with social factors are those who make people healthy. And that's where I got my passion for looking at what happens at the bottom line. Because poverty, ignorance, and disease remain the tripartite illnesses of life. They haven't changed in the last 100 years. So we need to focus on alleviating poverty, getting people off the poverty level is about the best way to improve their health. And that's where my interest came with um, social uh, activities and finding ways to support the underserved communities. It's amazing because you're talking about generations. I know Professor Nimely Briggs' work, and I know that he's, I mean, he's been so active in our community. Um, and, and so then what has your own experience been in terms of actually leading that change and hoping to see the narrative change from what your, those who inspired you has spoken about? Right. I guess it's not changed much, and that's the frustration that what makes a social entrepreneur is not what he or she does, but the innovation, the transformation is what makes a difference. So if you have a thousand people who have to queue to see a doctor for treatment of a condition, imagine if you had a software that they could access as an app on their phone so a thousand people can see one doctor at the same time, and that's transformation of care. And that's the difference. So in terms of social entrepreneurship, we've done quite a, a bit of work in the last, since 2008, for example, one has been involved in microfinance. But because the microfinance activity is still very manual, we've not used the benefit of innovation to influence the microfinance activities. And that's why we've not made as much difference as we could. So innovation is what is missing in all the intervention that's been going on. That's very insightful, like being able to just look at something and say, how do I try to make this better? Studied social entrepreneurship in school. Okay. And, okay. So that, and that's the foundation of it. You have to think. You have to be innovative. Think out of the box. Don't try to fit with the norm and see how you can make the norm work better because if you're trying to make the norm work better you're only just going to get stuck in a cycle so with that that's a good segue to knowing what your thoughts on the bottom of the pyramid are and the um, economic potentials across the board okay i mean um the the multinational corporations have i guess vested. i mean people have vested interests in a lot of times making system change has to do with how you tackle vested interests. So the, on the one hand, the argument is there that um, I think two-thirds of the world population, over four billion people, are at the bottom of the pyramid. And if you can reduce poverty and improve their access to funds, being able to do stuff better, for example, they're going to make more profit and things will get better for this bottom of the pyramid. So economically, it makes sense. But I want to take a little, a little shift to the left in terms of why do we have 
such a wide base. I think in 20, 2002, about 20% of the world population had access to about 86% of the economy, and now 8.6% has about 86% of the funds. So when you look at it from that point of view, income gap is widening all over the world. And I mean, sociologists have shown that in every country or every place where income gap is wide, all the social ills, all the health problems are worse. So I'm now wondering, those who have profited or who have created the income gap, we're now depending on them to be the ones to bring about the um, economic changes at the base of the pyramid and how possible is that? Well, maybe it is possible, but two things really are, 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 are important for that to work. One is the issue of governance and the issue of sustainability. Now, in the issue of governance, you and I know that a lot of governments are not answerable to the people. And where we are as a, as a people, there is so much corruption, sadly. And I'm wondering, are we in a position to put the right governance to make these things happen? And a lot of the profiteering that takes place in the communities is not sustainable. And how well, what political willingness is there amongst our leaders to enforce that this improvement of the economy has to be based on sustainability. And those are two things that when I look at our level of operation as a country, I'm not sure we can have governance and sustainability. And if that is not a possible, then I think it will not be the multinational corporations or civil society or social entrepreneurs who will make this happen. That's so intriguing. So I'm going to go back then to your what you were discussing about microfinance. Mm. Um, and because you're talking about people making that difference and maybe not waiting for government or the multinationals to, to create that impact. So let's go back to microfinance. Can you just tell us what your experience was of that and how it impacted the community that you were working with? Right. I'll tell a short story just to bring you into, into, into the discussion. A friend of mine who is, I think, is the, um, is the MD of Radio Rivers, I think, he told me many years ago when we started microfinance that his sister used to come to him to ask for money every week. And then for a two-month period, he didn't see her and he got worried. So he went looking for her. He said, I've not seen you for some time. And then she told him that she got some microfinance money from Wakarika Development Coalition. And then with that, she had gone into her small business and that is working. So she didn't need to come and beg him for money anymore. Now that little story of his sister was what made him show interest in what we're doing. It was a practical example. Now that may be a very little thing, but the fact is she was begging for money every week. She had access to small funds and she stopped begging she felt she could do something. Now, um, the microfinance started back in 2008 when I sent from the UK. I was thinking about the women in my village and I just sent 100,000 naira to my organization then to say, find four women, give them a loan, interest-free, let's see whether they can pay back. Now, that's, the women paid back and 100, 
thousand naira grew to become one fifty to two hundred thousand. At at the height of the program, we will now had about five million naira, which was provided by our community in US to support the program and take it beyond Ogoloma to the nine clans of our community. You know, and that that has gone on for for a while. So the interesting thing is that the women have not really gotten off the poverty level, but at least they have something that they are doing. And that's what I was thinking about that. I always wonder whenever we're doing something, how can technology come into this and bring about this, a transformation? It's not just enough to do something small and nice. How can you transform it? I mean, I read the book by Mohamed um, Yunis, Banker to the Poor. Of course, that's the Grameen Bank how it all started from $50 to um, such a massive business. But I'm thinking that looking at all the problems that we have at the bottom of the pyramid, how can we bring technology to make a difference, to transform the manual processing that we're doing? So, but I personally, I have a passion that I wish in every community there is a thriving microfinance scheme which is now powered by technology so in terms of accounting maybe mobile um, uh, phones can be used to do things and all of that but definitely microfinance has made a difference in the lives of about 500 women but all we have done really is to touch the problem i want to see a situation where these women are now coming together and then a cooperative bank you know so women who are having access to a hundred to fifty thousand naira can go on to access a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand, and then there is kind of geometric progression in the small businesses they are doing. So that one is frying one bag of akara in January. By January next year, she'll be frying three bags of akara. You can actually measure the improvement in her business, and then maybe from there she's going on to begin to supply granite oil. So part of that goes into her own business and all that. So the value chain comes. And I just believe that microfinance is one area that could transform our communities. Thank you. That that sounds it it resonates and especially when you said being able to measure the growth, which um, is something that is key in social entrepreneurship because while you're saying you want to help people you are also driven to be able to measure your social impact on returns. The way general finance will measure the return on regular investments, you have to also measure the social returns. So you talked about uh, microfinancing and you touched a bit on education, where you said, gave the example for the uh, women having kids, maternal mortality rates, education is key. Now, if we look at the, the two things combined, wouldn't you say, now I'm, on, I'm of the belief that you can't have one being a success without the other in order for people to be able to come out of poverty. Don't you think a firm, whoever, because I know our Nigerian, um, our policies as well, they allow us to be able, people can come together and start their own form of financial institutions and all of that. So wouldn't you say that 
having, say, an individual or group of individuals that decide that they want to give people this microfinance, but they also want it to be tied to education, where it is mandatory for the people getting the loans to get education, because then they will have the better knowledge on how to probably conduct their business. You get the train of thought. So what do you think about that? Right, okay. Um, the, when we started the microfinance um, project, one of the things which we were supposed to do and grow was enabling the women to acquire basic business skills. So in terms of bookkeeping, um, understanding what it means to run your own business as basic as it can be. And that's something that we thought could be developmental. So it is business 101 in year first year, year two, going to business 201 or whatever. So as the time goes on, the women now understand running a business. Um, now that kind of thing requires funding because what we said was, okay, we had 5% interest for the microfinance. But that 5% interest was actually not, it didn't come back to us. The women pulled the 5% interest and invested in a young person in their community that they chose. So when we gave um, a million naira, it means 100,000 was paid upfront. So instead of giving them 100K each, maybe we gave them 95K. And then they put 5% interest, 5K each, and put that together to now say, okay. And it was an interesting story. It had both practical and, should I say, social differences. The women did not feel like beggars because they saw themselves putting back into the community and making a difference in the life of one or two young people in that community. And like you said, in social entrepreneurship, you don't depend on philanthropy. You make some kind of profit and you're able to sustain the business. It's not like you bring 100,000 Naira, it's used up, next time you bring 100,000 Naira. So the money was recycled. So yes, definitely having, improving their business skills from zero to level one, to level one to level two was a part of the plan. So that's definitely important. And even more importantly, I mean, we have in the UK, we have what is called the Mammoth Reviews, and it talks about giving every child the best start in life is the best way to bring about community transformation. And I feel that whatever, another, another area that how can we give every child the best start in life, that's a way about bringing about community transformation in the next one or two decades. Thank you. So I'm going to go back to how we started this conversation, which was you kind of explained or described a charge from your mentors, these two professors who were saying things haven't changed. And through this conversation in terms of health, and through this conversation, you've kind of been asking a question that has really resounded with me, which was how can we bring technology to bear on the things that your generation is doing and it might be presumptuous but i felt like that was a question for my generation how can we bring technology to bear on what you're doing um and is there anything that you'd like to say to my generation in that regard you can be much more direct with your call to action as you uh, if you want well, i mean definitely the, the thing is that everybody knows that the best way to to go to, to grow economically, as it were, is to find solutions to everyday problems of life. So what are the everyday problems? I guess number one 
problem is what we talked about, the less than $2 per day poverty line. So we need to put money in people's pockets, but not dash their money, as we say, let them earn the money. And that is where things like microfinance comes in. So the other issue is that, I mean, going back to giving every child the best start in life, the father and mother of that child must have some money in their pocket, however small that is. So how can people earn a living? So microfinance is one. I think I had somebody talk about the waste to wealth, you know, and then using waste to wealth for either interlocking blocks or whatever things people can do. That's another example. I mean, I got to see farm crowding where people use digital platforms to invest and then farmers could access it. And that I think is transforming farming because farmers can access loans and then investors can get money back. That's again, I guess, a social enterprise. Um, I was speaking to a fashion designer from my community as I was coming back from work. He set up um, a fashion house and he wants to train people from our community to learn to acquire skills. <clears throat> and I thought, that's fantastic. What if you had a big industrial complex so that those that graduate from your school can come home and be part of that? And so that is his hope. But I can see that, again, the, the value chain comes in that, <clears throat> excuse me, is helping these people to acquire skills by so doing um, unemployment is reduced in the community and then um, he also makes money. Now, going on to the question you asked, again, it comes back to it. So how can we use technology to improve microfinance to make it more efficient? I like Dragon's Den, which we see again in the UK. Can young people who have business ideas take a, a YouTube video of their business idea and post it to privately to online Dragon's Den? It could be anybody anywhere who can log into that place See that business idea, get in touch with the person and then ask more questions. I mean, that's something that, again, technology can come in and then the, the, the investors make money and then more people in the community anywhere in Nigeria, anywhere else can, can be supported. Lights, for example, I saw some, some videos from, I think, um, South Asia some time ago where they, they got the roof and put a, a kind of thing and that gave lights to places based on the sunlight emitting rays or something of that nature. I mean, that's something very basic. And if you put that in a lot of our homes, let's imagine, that will make a difference. Malaria is the biggest problem we've had. And I'm wondering, there must be young people who can think about the whole process of mosquito to mosquito bites and all of that. Maybe there is a kind of sound which we can't hear, which mosquitoes can hear, which will repel them from our homes. Maybe that's something that somebody can find and then plug it into your phone when you're going to sleep, and then you don't hear the sound of things that are just driven away from your home. That's technology again. So I think it's about looking at the everyday problems and asking drug revolving funds, drugs are not, they can't find any drugs in for health centers. Maybe there could be a system where you can use technology to make drug revolving funds work better. I don't know what that is, but I feel that your generation, the problems are there, and in fact, I was thinking about what I said, quote, you know, I got this app a long time ago, M, is it M, Mimo or something, how to code. It says, and I was thinking that imagine if you had that kind of thing and then kids going around in the forest communities can learn to code. And who knows what tomorrow will be like for us. So honestly, your generation has a lot to offer. 
Wow, who knows what tomorrow will be like for us. Dr. Hector Goma, I'm going to ask you a question. So the show is called Rivers, the program is called Rivers of Unicorns, and a unicorn is a company, a private company, that's valued at $1 billion or more. If you were a unicorn, which would you be? Yeah, um, that's an interesting question because um, um, there are so many different aspects. That is um, health, health. Um, but like I said, health is not the absence of disease. There's e-commerce. Um, there's um, educational tech, financial tech. Um, I think I'd go for the educational tech because knowledge is power. So, and um, with um, EdTech, you can reach the ends of the earth. I mean, look at what EDX and uh, FutureLearn are doing. So I just feel if we can get EdTech and use solar power and overcome the problem of lights or find some new ways where people can have uninterrupted power. So I'd, I'd want to be somebody that will use education. EdTech would be mine. Would be mine. Dr. Hector Goma, what an immense pleasure. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Amy, why don't you tell us what book you're recommending for our listeners today? Thank you, Satoya. So the book I'm recommending today is titled The Upstats, How Uber, Airbnb, and the Killer Companies of the New Silicon Valley Are Changing the World by Brad Stone. Doctor, have you read this book? No, no, I haven't. Okay, so I'm going to tell you and our listeners why I'm recommending this book. I have two major reasons for doing so. Firstly, it is a penetrating study into how these now prominent Silicon Valley-based companies, that's Uber and Airbnb, came into being giving an insight into the sort of tenacity, conflict, wealth, and everything in between needed for these companies to revolutionize two major industries. That's the transportation industry and the hospitality industry. Secondly, it impacts in the reader the need to embrace progress and helps in mapping out possibilities. So it's, it's the kind of book that any person who is eager to get into technology, curious, you want to innovate, this is the kind of book for you to read because it's really, it's like a good study to tell all. I believe that everyone should read it. Well, thank you, Doctor, for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much.